Well, I'm really glad you're here today. Isn't it good to be here? It is good to be here. I'm glad actually to be back into First Peter. Every Sunday, if you're newer here, we meet and gather as a community. We love to worship. We love to sing. We love to pray. We love to serve. We love to give. It's a very generous community. And we love to open up God's Word. And that's what we're going to do today. We are all about teaching families to know and obey and enjoy Christ so we can be salt and light wherever God puts us. Peter, the author of 1 Peter, as he writes his letter, is nearing the end of his life. And I'm sure the brevity of his life is on his mind as he begins to share with a group of kingdom patriots how to live as exiles, as temporary residents, as foreigners, as sojourners, all while trying to anticipate the next. It's kind of like us, trying to figure out how we're supposed to live knowing that eventually we're going to be in eternity, at least all those who have come to faith. But God's left us here for a reason. And how do we do that? You know, the first century believers were trying to journey well between the two worlds. And because they were struggling a little bit, I think Peter tried to give them some encouragement. And when we go through hard times, and when we go through discouraging times, and when things seem to be a little bit hard, a good practice is always begin to focus on God. God is our amazing Father. And the problem is sometimes God becomes foggy, or we don't get God, or we don't understand all the things that that God desires for each one of us. But Peter's trying to blow away a little bit of that fog. He's trying to encourage each one of us to to trust him. He is our friend. He is our wise counselor. He is the one that gives us strength and perspective for the journey ahead. Today, Peter talks about war and how to prepare well for it. I've asked Lacey to read our scripture today, which is 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. So if you want to open your Bibles, or you want to look at the screen, or you want to open up your flat screen, lots of options. First Peter chapter 4, starting at verse 1. So then, since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude he had, and be ready to suffer too. For if you have suffered physically for Christ, you have finished with sin. You won't spend the rest of your lives chasing with your own desires, but you will be anxious to do the will of God. You have had enough in the past of the evil things that godless people enjoy, their immorality and lust, their feasting and drunkenness and wild parties, and their terrible worship of idols. Of course, your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things they do, so they slander you. But remember that they will have to face God, who will judge everyone, both the living and the dead. That is why the good news was preached to those who are now dead. So although they were destined to die like all people, they now live forever with God in the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you and and know that we need your Spirit to be able to open our eyes. 
I pray, Father, that even as um, we talk about these verses, that they would be so very practical, that you would encourage us where we need to be encouraged, and you'd convict us and where we need to be convicted, and, and you just help us understand what your precious word means to us today. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Imagine this. You've been deployed to Syria. You show up for duty at 0600 in shorts, flip-flops, a rifle, and helmet. You've been there a few days. It's rather warm over there. There's sand. Last time you were... You know, surrounded by sand. You know, shorts and flip-flops seem the right kind of thing to do. But wow, you look around at the rest of the troops. They're carrying about 50 pounds of gear. They're well prepared to be able to be deployed for that mission. I think Peter uses some familiar but really strong language to start off chapter 4. Language that quickly reminds us that we need to be prepared for our tour of duty in this hostile yet temporary environment. He starts off and says this, Arm yourselves with Christ's attitude towards suffering and be ready to suffer like Jesus. Arm yourself is a Greek term. It's a military term. It's a term that basically says, hey, you need to be ready for battle. It's in a tense that shouts a little bit about your actual choice. It's something you actually have to do yourself. And Peter says this, I want you to arm yourself. Take up your weapons in preparation for battle. The word is used of a heavily armed foot soldier who carries a pike and a large shield. Now many of us, again, don't understand all of what soldiers looked like back then. But if... Thank you. If you saw a soldier... You normally wouldn't do hand-to-hand combat with this long spear type of a situation. You'd, you'd, you'd fight differently, but when the army comes together, you have this long spear, you have a sword, you have a large shield. And together, the army together is quite a fearsome force. It's interesting, and Peter didn't say that, that it's not a lone soldier out there. But if you look at warfare during this time, it was really important that everybody work together in order to get a victory. And I think there's a little bit of that here. But Paul uses this term, actually it's a noun of this form, over and over and over. And we are told again well, that we're soldiers and that we are in a war. 
In Romans chapter 13, verses 12, 13, and 14, Paul writes this, The night is almost gone. The day of salvation will soon be here. So remove your dark deeds like dirty clothes and put on the shiny armor. Or arm yourselves, same word, of right living. Because we belong to the day. We live decent lives for all to see. Don't participate in the darkness of wild parties and drunkenness or in sexual promiscuity or in immoral living or in quarreling or jealousy. Instead, clothe yourself or arm yourself with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your own evil desires, or I'm going to put in selfish desires. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7, Paul writes this, We faithfully preach the truth. God is working in every one of us. We use weapons of righteousness, or the same exact word. I want you to arm yourself with weapons of righteousness in the right hand for attack and left hand for defense. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 3, We are human, Paul writes, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons. Same thing. I want you to arm yourself with God's weapons. Not worldly weapons to knock down strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. Paul starts off this passage, which is, remember, when he wrote this letter, it wasn't chapters and verses. All right. So we're literally ending this letter. It's closing out, and I think he's getting a little bit anxious. And he's picking his up, picking up the language a little bit, getting a little bit more forceful. And he purposely uses arm yourself to remind us of our purpose. We are soldiers in a spiritual battle. And I think he uses war because war is serious. It's usually life or death. In Ephesians chapter 6 of passage so very familiar to many of you. Starting at verse 10, the Apostle Paul writes this, a final word. And by the way, the church at Ephesus was probably the most doctrinally sound church. It was a church he spent the most time at. It was a church that that understood God's word. And he kind of ends that letter saying, hey, a final thing. I, I, I don't want you to forget this. Starting at verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor. Arm yourselves so that you will be able to stand firm against the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in heavenly places. Paul reminds us our war is just a little bit different. It's not always, well, objects with flesh and with blood. We are in a spiritual war. There are things that are happening that we don't see very well. But one of the things we're 
at war against is our own attitude. Is the way that we think. You know, it's real easy to point out physical enemies or neighbors or bosses or other friends that perhaps, you know, don't act like friends. And we can look at them and we can make them the enemy. But Paul reminds us, he says, hey, spiritual warfare is different. Spiritual warfare is something that you and I both need to prepare for. Peter is shouting. He's saying, let's not be casual. Be ready. There's no time really to fritter around. The scripture tells us that Christ suffered physical pain. He suffered realistically because he obeyed his father. We just spent last week focusing on the crucifixion of Jesus. We saw that that displayed unbelievable love for each one of us. And we also know that he struggled with going to the cross. He asked his dad, is there any other way? Can we do this differently? Ultimately, he obeyed his father. He carried the beam. He stretched his arm. And they were nailed. His blood was spilt. His obedience literally cost him his life. So if you obey God, you will suffer. Now, I don't think Peter is saying you're going to be crucified on a cross just like Jesus. It could mean that you will be persecuted, and sometimes we like to focus on that. But realistically, I think it probably means you're going to suffer because your focus is going to be on God and on others. So what actually is Christ's attitude toward physical suffering brought on by listening to God, listening to your king, by obeying, by listening to what God's word has to say? Well, first of all, our attitude toward God needs to be your will not mine. Because if we all have a selfish bent, anytime God's word or God's will points us in a direction that's a little bit different than what we want to do, we're offended. And we struggle with that. Because we like we. We like us. We are really important. And we like doing things that benefit us. So if God talks about generosity, sometimes I'm like, you know what, God? There's some things I've been kind of saving for, and, and maybe I... And you struggle. Or about morality. Or about... And you can put it in there. God's word seems really clear in some areas, but there are times when we say, you know what, God? Not your will. I want my will. But Jesus modeled for us very clearly. He said, Lord, um, is there any other way? Can we figure this whole cross thing out? He said, no. You need to die. I think Christ's attitude toward others. 
You know, literally putting others' needs above your needs. Again, if we just kind of go back a week in time, Jesus knew that he was going to spend this last meal with his disciples. And I'm sure he was kind of pondering what this night was going to look like, this horrific night. And, and I'm sure there's other things on his mind, but, but he got together with his friends. And he gave the Last Supper a brand new meaning, but one of the things that absolutely stick out to me is that he took the position of a servant. You would think that the guys would surround him. You would think if you were going to get beat up, if you are going to get mutilated, if you were going to be abandoned, that, that you might get together with Jesus, encourage him, strengthen him, remind him of truth. Well, what Jesus did in the very last night that he was alive is that he rolled up his sleeves, took off his robe, poured some water in a bowl and did the most demeaning task of a household servant. That was go and wash 12 people's dusty feet. One of them was going to betray him. Wow. So Christ's attitude toward obedience to his father was, your will, not mine. I don't know if that's going to work anymore. Thank you. That's how you get fired. <laughs> Christ's attitude toward others was, you know what, your needs are more important than my needs. And Christ's attitude toward himself, he says, you know what, I'm the last in the equation. I'm going to meet other people's needs all before I meet yours. You know, when Jesus was talking to his disciples, he would, he would say odd things over and over and over again. He was trying to change the, the kingdom parameters, trying to help them understand how the kingdom would um, force us to look at life differently. And there were a whole lot of people that wanted to follow Jesus, and, and he was quite popular at certain times of his ministry. And Jesus would would share with us just some very odd things. And in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, he called the crowd together to join his disciples, and he said this, I hear a whole lot of people wanting to be my disciple. Well, let me tell you what that looks like. Mark 8, verse 34 and 35. If any of you want to be a, my follower or my disciple, you must give up your own way. You must take up your cross, and you must follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. And if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. Jesus said this, followers or people that want to be followers are going to have to think less about their needs. Literally, you're going to have to die to them. Oh, that's, that's kind of hard. 
You need to pick up your cross. You need to remind yourself that there is going to be hard times. There is going to be suffering. And you need to obey me. If you want to be a follower, you're going to need, ultimately, to do what I ask you to do. So Peter writes this, if you have suffered physically because of your obedience to Christ, you literally have made a clean break, or sin is no longer your master because pleasing God is your focus. You see, the root of all sinfulness, uh, excuse me, the, the root of all sin is selfishness. We love to please ourselves, we love to worship ourselves. Yet when we come to faith, each one has a new master and no longer needs to serve or bow down to the old. Well, the old master, which is us. For if you died with Christ on the cross, sin's power or authority over you is broken. Your selfish, self-focused, me-first attitude has been hamstrung. I actually like the word hamstrung. Some of you guys know that um, I used to be a head wrangler at a camp. And so I had a lot of involvement with horses and actually love horses a whole lot. And they're just an amazing animal. But if you've ever looked at a horse, the back section of the horse is like all muscle. I I know I want to not talk about the butt of a horse, but, but it's... That back part, okay? And, and those muscles are unbelievable, especially when you watch them run and you watch them jump. And, and one of the practices of old would be if a conquering army would come, they would hamstring the horses, which sounds rather cruel. Joshua was even told to do it. But it's literally cut the tendon of those horses, which means they were allowed to live But they couldn't do any of the things that they were designed to do. They couldn't pull chariots. They couldn't do work. They they just were there and they limped through life. They could not do anything that they used to be able to do. And I think literally that's what God did at the cross. We always have a bent. We have this flesh. We have... Well, habits that so many of us have developed over the years. But at the cross, Christ hamstrung that. We do not have to obey that master anymore. In Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 10, 11, and 12, when he died, when Jesus died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin. You should consider yourself hamstrung to sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ. Don't let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to the sinful. But if you and I are honest, we might say this. But I like sin. I like being in control. I like focusing on myself. I like doing what I want to do when I want to do it. 
I'm not into this authority thing. And especially God, he seems to have way too many rules for me. I think I'm just going to live my life my way and enjoy it. Well, my question to you is, how's that going? How is that going? You know what I found out personally? And I found out as a pastor. And I found out as I interact with people. You know, doing your own thing is really, really, really exciting for a short moment. But the consequences are disastrous. You know, if I have an opportunity to sit down with people and just talk, hey, what brings you fulfillment? What brings you joy? What brings you, well, what helps you get out of bed every day? You know, the truth is, is that if we are being self-focused and we are only looking at our own selves, um, that only lasts for such a short time. What Peter says is, hey, you know the fruit of B.C., or shall I say, before Christ. When you didn't know Jesus, you had great highs, but horrific lows. You know, that immorality. Oh, immorality. Doesn't the screen really paint immorality beautiful? Doesn't it? I mean, for you to have an affair, oh. There's all kinds of books and movies about that. We always forget what happens when someone is unfaithful. Now God can forgive and God can mend. But that's not God's design. Lust, feasting, overeating, wild parties... I guess the definition of a wild party would just simply where there's a bunch of selfish people coming together, just enjoying whatever they want to enjoy. And the worship of idols. Anything other than God. You see, anything outside of God's will is called sin, and anything outside of God's will brings death. John MacArthur says about this text, he says, Christians can be further encouraged when they recall what sin has done to them all their lives on earth. Sin is ever-present in their unredeemed flesh and assaults them as long as they live, constantly rising up within them to spread its damaging effects. The ever-present conflict with sin causes them the desire more and more to escape it. Peter really just says this, you have had enough. You remember what it was, not listening to God, doing your own thing. You are chasing after your own will. And I like the word here, chasing after, because it's this hard thing to do. You are moving at a great pace. But then he says, you will be anxious to chase after God's will. Listen to God. Walk with God. You see, there's times that every one of us have run from God, and we have experienced some of those consequences, some real, some horrific. 
But what happens is that when you understand God's grace and when you recognize what it means to actually listen to God, you begin to be drawn to what God has for every one of us. You see, you're a new person. And when you become a new person at faith, you have fresh desires. And maybe some sitting here today aren't there. Maybe you're still dabbling, listening to you and listening to God. It's kind of a miserable person. So, Peter says this, you follow God's will. And when you follow God's will, your not yet redeemed friends will be shocked. Look at verse 4. Of course, your former friends are not surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things they do. So they slander you. Interesting. They are shocked that you're not running with them anymore. You know, sometimes, and I want to be careful where I tread here, but sometimes believers take great pride and looking at the depravity of their neighbors and kind of building themselves up on how really good and moral and wonderful and holy you are. Well, you probably are, and it's because of God's grace. But realistically, those folks who are well, perhaps making fun or shocked or, or not excited that you're joining them in their parties. How do we love them and just not love the sin? You know, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, Paul writes this, We understand our fearful responsibility to the Lord that we work hard to persuade others. That it's not just kind of a casual approach, but it's, you know what, I'm going to work hard at fishing and luring. Not deceiving, but making sure that this is an important thing. In other words, encourage you to love more and judge less. Now, perhaps slander will follow, and at times shock turns into hostility. But Peter helps us put this in perspective even though I want you to know I struggle a whole lot with with verse 5. Because Peter says this, Remember that your friends will someday stand before God, a righteous judge. Remember, they're going to have to face God. And God's going to judge everyone. God's going to judge the living and the dead. And I don't want to go too deep into theology, but I'd like to focus at least on two judgments. Someday, two judgments out of probably seven kinds of judgments, but at least two today we're going to focus on. One is called the great white throne judgment. And we find the great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20, verses 14 and 15, and in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 to 10. But the unredeemed will be judged at the great white throne judgment. Anyone who has come to faith, anyone that knows Jesus, will not be judged at the great white throne judgment. Let me read in 2 Thessalonians what Paul writes about this. He said, in his justice, or in God's justice, he will pay back those who persecute you. 
And God will provide rest for you who are being persecuted and also for us when the Lord appears from heaven. He will come with his mighty angels in flaming fire, bringing judgment on those that don't know God and on those who refuse to obey the good news of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with eternal destruction, forever separated from God and from his glorious power. But when he comes on that day, he will receive glory from his holy people, praise from all who believe. And this includes you, for you believed what we told you about him. Now, in some ways, we love justice. But the reason that these words are hard for me to take is that eternity is so final. I deserve to be separated from God forever because of my sin. But because of God's grace, I have responded, and I am part of God's family, and I will spend eternity with God. But there are people I know, if I'm really honest, who maybe live atrociously obnoxious lives, flaunting their sin in every way they can. And by the way, if you didn't have Jesus, I'd probably be doing the same thing. If I only have this life, I'm, I'm going to live like crazy right now. If this is all I have, I will not be here on a Sunday morning, just so you know. And the truth is, if somebody dies without Jesus, they spend eternity apart from God. And in the fires of hell. That's hard. I'm pretty sure there's a whole lot of times I don't really believe in hell because I would talk to people differently. Not that I would, you're gonna go! No, No. But would you please listen to God's amazing message? He wants to give you life right now, but He also wants. You to spend eternity with him. This is amazing. This is the good news. The good news is that Jesus came. He died on the cross so that each one of us might live now and forever. I'm not saying everyone's going to accept that. But I think you approach life a little differently if you really believe That if your friend, if your son, if your neighbor, if your boss rejects Jesus, they will spend eternity under the wrath of God. Now believers, believers are judged at the judgment seat, or what we would call the Bema seat. All right? It is a time where all believers come together and they're judged for their faithfulness. They're not judged whether they're going to spend eternity with God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, Paul writes this, Our goal as believers is to please Him, for we're all going to stand before Christ to be judged. We each will receive whatever we deserve. Now that's also sobering. Because then all of a sudden you live differently here on this earth. 
If you live to please yourself, in spite of being part of God's family, we will not receive the reward that God has intended for those who are faithful. You know, look at verse 6. And this is sweet. This or that is why the good news was preached to those who are now dead. So although they were destined to die, like all people, they will now live forever with God. That's the good news. The good news is that the dead, those who die, before the rapture, before we're called back, before we spend eternity with God, the dead will live in God's presence. You see, we all die, but some will live eternally with God. Let me say that again. We all die. We all die. But some will live forever with God rather than apart from God. That's amazing. I'll tell you, I am so grateful. I am so overwhelmed. And I am so ignited to be able to faithfully proclaim God's grace to every man, woman, and child that doesn't know Jesus. Their only hope is a cross. Their only hope. Is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I am, I, uh, I struggle. I love you being a God of love and I love you caring for me personally. But I also know you are a just God. And the reason Jesus came to die was to provide a way for each one of us to live abundantly now and eternally someday. God, would we be so aware of what you've had to offer us? Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that, that we have the ability to walk with you, to obey you. We know the consequences of sin are death even while we're alive, but we certainly know, God, that the consequences of a rebellious life, of walking away from you, is a separation from you. You give us what we choose. We pray, Father, that we would be overwhelmed with your grace. We are so grateful for all that you've done for us. We ask you, dear Lord, that, that we would hear you well. We would respond to you. And even today, God, if there is someone right here sitting in this room that doesn't know you, some reason, God, they, they have not received your grace. I pray that happens even now. I pray that they would know. In Jesus' name, amen.